welcome. Uh, I'm excited to dive into the word with you this morning. And kind of as we mentioned last week, as I mentioned last week in January, we kind of get this time where as a congregation, we kind of get to uh, choose our own adventure. So the rest of the year uh, here at East, we'll be preaching along along through the book of Matthew with the rest of the Midtown congregations. But in January, we get to kind of do what we feel like God is leading us to. And our theme uh, for January, these three weeks, is generosity, which as I said last week, if you've been around church for a while, maybe that kind of elicits this like, oh no, we're gonna be talking about money. Oh. And I'll just tell you, uh, as pastor, seeing a bunch of new faces, it is kind of spooky to be up here talking about money on the day there are a lot of new people here, okay? Uh, but what I hope that you hear this morning is that you hear the gospel, that as we talk about uh, what Jesus has to say to us about all of the things in our, in our lives, that you would hear the radical love of Jesus for you and that you would hear that Jesus cares about all of the details of your life because he cares about you. And getting ready... Uh, for this sermon, there's been this image that has kept coming to mind for me this week, and it's from this book that I'm reading called The Rules of Civility. I don't know if any of you have read it. It like came out like a decade ago, but I'm really enjoying it. And it, this, there's this scene that I can't get out of my head, and it's from the opening of the book, and the main character in that book, her name is Kate, and she's at a photographer's exhibit with her husband, and she runs across two portraits of an old friend. His name is Tinker, from like 30 years in her past. And in one of the pictures, her friend is poor and hungry and without prospects. That's how she describes him looking. And in the other photo, he's wearing a cashmere coat, a custom-made shirt, and his kind of Windsor knot is just peeking out. He looks rich and self-possessed. And her husband assumes what we'd all naturally assume, which is that the wealthy picture is the picture that comes second, right? Like kind of a rags-to-riches story. And the husband says, well, he certainly got back on his feet and that he was suddenly in a good mood. The journey from threadbare to cashmere restored his natural sense of optimism. That's what it says about the husband. But it's not the case at all. That Kate, the protagonist, she has to correct her husband. And that it was actually the other way around. It was the picture of the man looking poor and hungry and younger that actually came after. Oh, riches to rags, the husband says. No, not exactly, says the wife. And she goes on, yes, Tinker looked poor in that picture. He looked poor and hungry and without prospects, but he also looked young and vibrant too and strangely alive. And I've been imagining, man, what, what did that photo look like of a guy on a train who looks poor and hungry and without prospect and yet looks strangely alive? And here's the thing. I believe it. After reading the book, or about 75% of the book is where my Kindle tells me I am right now, okay? I can see how this character ditching all the money and all the work and this complex, complex web of relationships could leave him looking and feeling and projecting way more freedom than he had had before. He would look more alive and far younger, but I also believe that because I have seen it in real life. Like, you guys have seen it, haven't you? when you've had people in your life who have finally put down the drive that they have for more and more and more and how you can watch the years just fall off of them? Have you ever seen that happen? Oh, it's so good. And I believe it because the scriptures teach it to be true. 
that so often the things that we own end up owning us, don't they? That the ways that we make a living end up making us, defining us, that the relationships we have, the friends that we have, the children we have, the parents we have, they end up having us and not always in a good way that we can feel captive to them. And what the scriptures teach, what Jesus himself teaches, and we're gonna see this this morning, is that freedom is actually possible. But that freedom only comes through radical, hilarious generosity. That that kind of generosity will cost you your entire life. Do you want that kind of freedom? That kind of generosity will totally redefine your relationship with God. It will redefine your relationship to your money and it will redefine your relationship to other people. Are you ready? Because that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, okay? So I'm gonna invite June Joseph to come up. June is gonna be reading our scripture for us this morning and it is out of Luke 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip uh, to Luke 18. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. So Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. It'll be up here on the screen behind June. You can follow along. Or if you uh, like want a Bible and don't have one, we've got them at the back table and would love for you to grab one uh, and take it with you. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thanks, June. Guys, pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, Jesus, we need you uh, to speak truth to us. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would do it this morning, that you would awaken us to your radical generosity in our lives and that that generosity uh, would change us. We pray these things in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So yes, we are talking about uh, 
the rich young ruler this morning. I had someone who, when I was telling them this is the passage we were preaching on, said, oh, I used to hate that passage, right? And maybe if you've been around church before, you kind of have that reaction to hearing about this guy. Uh, We call him the rich young ruler because of what the passage tells us about him, right? One of the first things that that Luke shares... Oh, guys, where did my notes about what the scripture says go? Uh, One of the first things that Luke tells us about him is that he is rich. Uh, And then, or excuse me, that he is a ruler. And then we see a little bit later uh, in verse 23 that he's rich. And this story, as much as we might cringe at it, uh, is a story that appears in three of the four gospels. So in three of the four stories about Jesus's life, this story appears, which tells us that the early church thought it was important and that it was popular. Like they, they, they liked talking about it. And in one of the other accounts from one of the other gospels telling this same story, this ruler is identified as young. Which means he's the whole package. He's got everything. He's got money, he's got power, and he's got looks, right? He's young. And as much as they love that in the ancient world, it's the same stuff that we're after today, isn't it? Okay, so we got the rich young ruler. And yeah, we've got these details to go off of, but one of the things that I love about scripture and love about the gospels in in particular is the way that the authors uh, use such specific details to help us connect with and get into the hearts of the characters that they're presenting. That they have this way of choosing just just the right details from these stories to pull out and to share with us that help us understand the people that we're looking at. And we get that right from the rich young ruler's first words when he when he looks at Jesus and calls him good teacher. And what all the commentators say about this phrase, good teacher, is that this guy is blowing smoke. That what he's doing by calling Jesus a good teacher is he is going over and beyond and he's flattering Jesus. Which is exactly what you would expect a rich young ruler to do, right? To show up and just start like dealing out his charm with Jesus. But there's also this very kind of subtle undercurrent when this man comes to Jesus and calls him a good teacher, that what he, again, in a very subtle way is doing is proclaiming his right to judge Jesus. That like he can come and he can determine whether or not Jesus' teaching is good or bad. And he's basically telling Jesus, I've got good news for you, Jesus. I believe that you are a good teacher. Jesus is not taken in by this, right? He's patient with the guy, but he sees right through it. And he says to him, why do you call me good? Classic Jesus. No one is good except God. That he's, he's listening to this man and his words. He's listening to this man's heart even more than the man is listening to himself. And right away, Jesus is kind of, he's highlighting what's going on in this guy's heart. He's saying, oh, if only God is absolutely good, then do you realize what you've said about me? And Jesus goes on, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, la, la, la. Just obey God. Right? Give him a very simple, straightforward answer. And the guy says, no, 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 I need more than that. All of these I have kept from my youth. That's bold. Oh, yeah, I'm a pro at the commandments. What he's saying to Jesus is, but there's got to be more, right? That's why he's coming in the first place. And in, and in some of the other accounts, we get that in, their, in the other snippets of their dialogue. Is he says, yes, but what else? 
but he knows that there is something missing from his life, that all of his righteousness, all of the things that he is doing aren't quite stacking up to where he, know he, he knows he needs to be. And we get, again, just such a picture of his heart, even with his first question, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? that what he believes is that he is capable through his doing is meriting eternal life from God. It's baked into his worldview that he, it's possible for him to merit eternal reward. Oh. Guys, and then Jesus calls him on it. Okay, when Jesus heard this, he said, well, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He must have hit this guy like a lightning bolt. Jesus is saying to him, okay, I'm a good teacher, right? That you recognize that I come from God, right? That your life is all about obedience, right? Okay, come on, sell it all and follow me. Whoa, 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 the guy says. Yeah, I mean, you're a good teacher, but I don't know that you're that good. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus calls his bluff. He knows the man's absolute arrogance. And the context of the story makes this so clear. Because right after the rich young ruler, Jesus is passing through the city of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem where he's gonna be crucified. And there is this man, this poor blind man standing at the side of the road who cries out in a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone around this blind man is so embarrassed. And they're like, shh, 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 stop it, stop it, stop it. And as, as they're shushing him, he gets louder. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. And he cries it over and over and over again. And Jesus stops and he sees him and he heals him. And right after Jesus' interaction with this blind man, then he, that's, this is when he sees Zacchaeus, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school, a wee little man was he? Yeah, that guy, up in the tree, right? And he says, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus, who was like a notorious sinner in the community, throws open the doors, has this massive party, and then he stands up at the party and he says, I'm giving away not everything I own, but a lot of it. And Jesus is like, yes, Zacchaeus gets it. Because Zacchaeus recognizes his deep and desperate need for Jesus. And what Jesus is highlighting for this rich man, because of his love for him, he's saying to him, man, you have no idea how vulnerable and desperate you are. And he's pulling those layers back for this man. He's showing them to him. He's saying, you are, so, you are so needy and you have no idea. One of the other gospels says, Jesus looks at the man with love and says, go sell everything you have and follow me. Because he loved him. Oh, and this guy is not looking to have his desperation exposed. He just wants another merit badge. He would rather exist in a relationship of owing and earning with God. Right? 
How can I earn my way into God's favor? How can I do something with God so that God will owe me? And Jesus is saying, no, brother, that is religion, and that's what I've come to save you from, is this sense that you've got to earn your way to God, that you've got to owe something to God, that God's going to owe something to you, that you can manipulate or control God through your actions. He's saying, no, no, you've got to come to God crying out with your desperation, acknowledging your need and your vulnerability before him. Guys, this is what's so important here. Why it's important that this guy is rich, why it's significant, is that as people, we are all always, we are often trying to avoid our vulnerability before God. Yes, that's like a person thing. But wealth is an especially good insulator from our vulnerability. That money is very good at making us believe that we do not need God. Making us believe that we, that we don't need anything. There's this Pew Research survey that was conducted in 2019 of 102 countries on the relationship between prayer and income. And it showed that in every wealthy country survey, that is with those with a per capita GDP over $30,000, all except one, fewer than 40% of adults say they pray every day. For example, in Japan, where the per capita income is about 38,000, roughly a third pray daily. In Norway, where it's 68,000, fewer than one in five adults do. And they go on to say these findings are broadly aligned with other data that suggest that a country's level of wealth is inversely proportional to its levels of religious commitment as measured by survey responses about daily prayer, belief in God, attendance at religious services. In other words, people in poorer countries tend to be more religious than people in wealthier countries. Of course. Now, it's easy for people in a, in a rich, uh, industrialized, educated country to look down on people in poor countries and say, well, you know, one day, if they were to be as, as wealthy and as educated as we are, they would grow out of their belief in God, right? But just when I say that, do you recognize how arrogant that sounds? And of course, that's why we can't say it out loud anymore, but that's kind of the undertone of what's going on. But what we see here is that people in poor countries, what is true about them when you have less income is that you are less insulated from, from the reality of your vulnerability and your need in the world. And your awareness of your material need, uh, it, it makes you aware of your level of spiritual need. So that's what's so kind of dangerous about wealth is that it insulates us from our awareness of our total desperation before God. And that's what Jesus is waking this guy up to see. Oh, you are so desperate. And if you would give it all away, this man would then be, he's inviting him into not, not a relationship of owing and earning with God. He's inviting him into a relationship of giving and receiving. And if you were here last week, and that sounds kind of similar to what we preached on last week, it's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. That to be in relationship with God is to with the God of the universe as he actually exists and as he actually invites us into relationship with him is to admit how desperate we are. That when we stand before a holy God, all we can feel is fear and our inferiority before him, how great he is and how small we are. And the amazing thing of the gospel is that what Jesus teaches us is that that is exactly the place that God desires to start a relationship with us, to come to us and say, let me pour all of my love and my grace upon you, that if you think that you can earn your way to me, you are so far off. But as soon as you admit your inability, man, my love pours down, it rains down on you. In fact, 
It's God's aggressive, chasing love raining down on you that brings you to the place where you can even admit in the first place that you were desperate and in need of his love. That Jesus is bringing this man into a place of being able to acknowledge his desperation so that he cannot earn from God, but receive from God. And that receiving, this, this kind of receiving God's generous grace is then, what fr- is then what frees us. That's what Jesus is trying to do for this man. He's trying to free him. Uh, it's experiencing radical generosity uh, that brings the freedom that we so desperately desire. And that receiving of radical generosity, it then reorients and redefines our relationship with our money. And this is an ongoing need in our life, even as people who are already Christians. That's true about you. In Hebrews 13, 5, the author of Hebrews encourages us, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that as you follow Jesus, you will always be contending against the love of money growing in your life. Hey guys, we never talk about that in church, do we? It's very awkward. Like you would never say if you, like maybe you've been in a discipleship group before and you show up and you say, hey, how are you doing this week? Oh yeah, you know, reading through the scriptures. Oh, I was just really, I was really convicted. I'm using all the church words, I know. I was really convicted by, I'm just so greedy, you know? I was really wrestling with greed this week. No one says that. Like you get coffee with a friend, you never look at your friend and say, hey, look, here's the thing. I just, I, I just am really envious of you. You have more money than me and I'm super jealous. When I look at your clothes and your vacation and your house, what I think is, man, I wish I were you and my life would be better if I were you. Have you ever said that to anybody? No, right? Because we have this, I don't know if it's just an American thing or what it is, but we have all of these rules about the way that we talk about money, right? Like I went to Vanderbilt for college and let me just tell you, I didn't meet anyone who told me that they grew up wealthy. Everyone said, well, you know, we were upper middle class. (laughs) No, you weren't, right? And I know you guys are laughing because that's true for some of you. You say the same thing. Well, we didn't have a lot. My parents worked really hard. Of course they did. Right? But we have such an allergic reaction to talking about and acknowledging money and the grip that it has on our lives. Oh, but guys, so often the things that we own, they own us, don't they? And it sneaks into our Christian life and it begins to suffocate it and put us back in this relationship of earning and owing with God. And here's one of the ways that I hear as a pastor, it's when people ask me, how much do I have to give? Like, is that whole tithe thing in the Old Testament, is that like still a thing, right? The Old Testament says you gotta give 10% of what you, what you make to God. They're like, well, does that, still, does that still hold up? I've had someone ask me before, is that pre-tax or post-tax? Come on now, some of you have wondered it. I know, right? Do you see what that's doing with God? It's making God our IRS collection agent. It's moving us out of this relationship with God that's all about giving and receiving, again, back into a place of owing. And it totally distorts our experience of our Heavenly Father to relate to God in that place of owing and earning. But man, that desire for money and control, I can just keep as much as I can. And yeah, I wanna like give God the crumbs and keep him happy, but then I can do what I want with the rest of it. God loves us too much for that. And guys, I'll just tell you, I get it, okay? 
I have wondered before, when I get like a generous birthday gift or Christmas gift, is this gift uh, tax-free, right? Like, do I have to report this to God? Is this taxable income, tithe taxable income? I'm, I'm just saying, I get it. But Jesus loves us too much to let us live in that place of treating him as our IRS collections agent. This is what Peter says to Jesus in this story. After Jesus says, you know, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. If you were to put that in like southern terms, I think it would be it's more difficult for a possum to go through a potato peeler. Like he's being funny, right? He's saying it's impossible. And yet it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. And everyone's like, what do you mean, Jesus? This is really hard to work with. And Peter, classic Peter, right? He says to Jesus, well, we've given up a lot to follow you. I've given up my house. We've given up our houses. And in in, in other iterations of this story, Peter says, "Uh, we've given up everything. Which are just two different ways of saying the same thing. Peter says, well, we've given it all. Are we okay? And and guys, what I want to celebrate from Peter's statement is this acknowledgement that, it's, that is at the heart of the gospel that to come and receive from Jesus also costs us everything. That to follow Jesus, we give up everything. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his, my, his life for my sake will find it. That's the cost of following Jesus, is saying to Jesus, Lord, everything that I have belongs to you. All of the resources I have, all of the relationships that I have, even my very self, I, it, it's yours. And we do that not to get love from God, but because of the love that he has showered upon us. What other response could we have? The God who has given everything in Christ to come down and and bring us back to himself that we would say, Jesus, you have me. Not that that somehow is enough or settles the score, but like, of course, I want to give myself to you as you've given yourself for me. Guys, that uh, is costly. There's this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany when the Nazis came to power. And he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And what he saw around him is that the people around him, had, they had made Jesus' grace cheap in their lives. That following Jesus was just kind of these abstract ideas. It didn't really matter how we live or what our lives are like. We're just kind of... And he, he saw all of that and he said, no, that's not true at all. This is from the introduction to his book. He says, when the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it's proclaiming a discipleship which will liberate mankind from all man-made dogmas, from every burden and oppression, from every anxiety and torture which afflicts the conscience. If they will follow the laws of Jesus, men will escape from the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kindly yoke of Jesus, kindly yoke of Jesus. But does this mean that we ignore the seriousness of his commands? which is what people always want to do when they hear the story of the rich young ruler. They're like, well, what is my out, right? Dietrich says, far from it. 
We can only achieve perfect liberty and enjoy fellowship with Jesus when his command, his call to absolute discipleship is appreciated in its entirety. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. In calling us to give ourselves what Jesus is saying, come and give yourself yes. And what you will find when you surrender yourself to Jesus and and all that you are and all that you have is the freedom and the rest that comes from the gospel. Oh, Lord, thank you. that all that we have is from God, that all that we have belongs to God, and that for the short time that we are here on this earth, what we get to do is steward what God has given us in a way that honors God. Guys, and here's what that means about the tithe, okay? The call to give 10% of your income to, to God or to the church or whatever, do you realize it is nowhere repeated in the New Testament? Doesn't exist. Because the call on us as believers is not that we would give 10% of our income. It's not that we would continue to relate to God in this way of earning and owing. That the call in the New Testament is to generosity, to hilarious giving and generosity. And I know, because there are a lot of you in this room who are like me and are like, but yes, but what's the number, right? Just tell me the number. Guys, that is our hearts that are so bent toward the law, that are so bent toward earning and owing from God. And he's saying, no, I'm calling you into an adventure that is so much bigger than that, an adventure of generosity. Could it be less than 10%? Sure. Could it be more than 10%? Sure. No, that could be true. But the only way you are gonna know that is when you, in your relationship with God, are doing the dance with him, the dance of discipleship. If you think back to last week, we're talking about the story of the prodigal son, right? Even if you don't know it, I'll just recap it for you. This man loses his son because he goes away to a, to a country, blows all of his dad's money, comes back, the dad throws a big party for him. That's what you need to know. And in this party, there's lots of eating, there's lots of drinking, there's lots of dancing. And you can imagine this old, like, Middle Eastern patriarch in his robe, you know, and he's doing it. Like, he is dancing there with his son, and the son is out there on the dance floor and he's, like, he's saying, I want to be like my dad when I grow up. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to become like the God who has given everything for me. His go-to dance move, guys, is generosity. So as we become like him, that that would become true about us. It would start to characterize the way that we live and move and breathe and have our being. And can I just tell you, it is so fun and creative to live like that with Jesus. You guys, you guys know those moments where you have been in the grocery store line and the person, you've had the person you think, I should pay for that person's groceries. And you're like, that's too weird, right? He can't do it. Have you had those moments? Right, the dancing with the generosity of Jesus is like, okay, okay. The creativity and the freedom of that, where does that fit in the budget? I don't know. Maybe the budget is actually what frees you to have that kind of generosity. Or maybe the budget is the way that you control your life. I don't know. I'm not here preaching on budgets. What I'm telling you is the Bible invites us to this dance of generosity with Jesus, of pouring out what he has poured into us. I love this passage from 2 Corinthians 9, and I found it from this version called the Passion Translation. I have no idea anything about this translation, but I like the way it said this verse, okay? This is Paul talking. He says, here's my point. 
A stingy sower will reap a meager harvest, but the one who sows from a generous spirit will reap an abundant harvest. Let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty. Let it spring up freely from the joy of giving, all because God loves hilarious generosity. Man, and I will just tell you, in my own journey with this, one of the things I have feared is like, well, if all this belongs to God and I gotta be generous with it, then I guess that means I'm never gonna do anything fun again in my life. I guess I can't go on vacation because that's so wasteful. Have you ever felt like that or thought that? Okay, maybe it's just me, but I'll just tell you what I've been thinking about that, okay? What Jesus has given me about that uh, because it's in his word. Uh, Jesus threw a party for the younger son, Right? So why do I think that Jesus isn't gonna throw a party for me? That Jesus is so generous with everyone else, but with me, he's really stingy and he's always counting out my allowance? No! He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's calling us to enjoy it and to celebrate it. And where is the line between like lavish excess and celebration? Guys, I don't know. You're gonna have to figure it out with Jesus. And you could even invite other people in this room into helping you figure it out. That would require us to have some courageous conversations about money, but it's possible, okay? And if you're waiting for this moment in your life when you're like, you know what, this giving, all this giving business. Okay, fine. When I, when I like feel really generous, then I will do it. Because I'm just going to tell you, that might not ever happen. If you're waiting for the feeling to come first. What Jesus tells his disciples is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's encouraging them is to let their will lead their heart. To decide toward placing their treasure somewhere and trusting that their heart will follow. Letting the will lead the heart. And that as that happens, the heart comes along. That's one of the reasons that we encourage you that if you call this place home, that you would give here. I don't have to give all of it. I don't, whatever God leads you to give, that you'd participate in that because it's a way of saying, like, I'm in and trusting that your heart follows that. And guys, as we're talking about generosity and money specifically, like, is Midtown one of the places you can give? Yes. You all know we've, like, told you about our need and it's all out there, okay? We can talk more about it if you want to. Because it's so much bigger than that. God is calling you to be generous in so many places. The places that, God, the, the end of year letters that some of you got from people all across the world asking you to be generous with them, I'm sure you could cover your refrigerator with them, some of you. Yes, because God is doing so much good work in the world. There are so many places you could give. Yes. So in your time, in your relationship with him, go with him on that journey of figuring out where is he calling you? Into experiencing the freedom that comes with the gospel. Okay. And there's one other thing we got to talk about. Is that this generosity also uh, applies to our relationships with each other. In the same way that our relationship with God can become all about owing and earning, our relationships with each other can become like that, can't they? Transactional. In verses 29 and 30, of our passage, Jesus says this. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And you're like, I can do the thing with the houses, but are you telling me I'm gonna get even more family than I already have? Is that a promise or a curse, Jesus? I already have enough people in my life that I feel obligated to. 
I already have enough people in my life that I owe things to that I can't give them. I already have so much I'm pouring out. And now you're going to put more of those people in my life and you're telling me that's a gift? Do any of you connect to that at all? Okay. Just think of all of the shoulds that creep into the way that we talk about our relationships with each other. Like when you're thinking about who should, who should I have over for dinner this weekend? Who should I? And you're thinking, about, well, when was the last time I had... Well, and it's, they're kind of out of the rotation, so we've got to make them in to make sure they feel okay, but then if I, then I've got to, and then I really should call my, who is it? I don't know who it is for you. I really should call my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, my dad, my, my child, my, my daughter, my son. I really should, 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 should. But that is so the way that we can be in relationship with each other. And then you come here, and you're like, well, geez, this is a whole room of shoulds waiting for me. So yeah, like, I'll come and show up and like, oh, the greeting time, oh, so nice to meet you. But like, I don't want to actually let any of these people into my life to the degree that they could have any shoulds for me or I could have any shoulds for them because it's dangerous and scary. It reminds me of this Panera, these Paneras that opened across the country. This was like a decade ago. These Panera stores that were pay what you want. Any of you heard about this? There was a whole planet money on, on NPR, so you can go look it up, okay? And these Paneras opened up across the country and the idea was people just pay what they want to pay. And they're like, you know, people are basically good, right? And it'll all, like, that'll probably make some money. And people who are poor will get the food they need. People who are rich will, like, give a little bit. They'll feel better about themselves. All of those stores are closed now. And none of you were surprised by that, except for the one in Boston, which runs at an operating deficit, but Panera still decides to fund. And we are so terrified of that in our lives, aren't we? That if I actually participate in the world as if it is not about owing and earning, but it's about giving and receiving, what am I gonna get? Am I gonna be okay? Am I gonna have enough? Or I'm gonna be left like that Panera bankrupt? Right? Oh, and friends, I will just remind you that in Jesus, you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything. That the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart is constantly pouring God's love into you. And that love that is constantly being poured into you, he's inviting you, would you give it out? Would you do this dance of generosity, not only with your resources, but also with your heart? And guys, to open yourselves up to that kind of generosity, even in this room, is to open yourselves up to pain. Because we have all kinds of expectations for each other that are never spoken out loud and that we are always disappointing each other in. And that's hard and that's real. Because the love of Jesus for us and that he's pouring into us is even greater than that. And that when we set down our owing and our earning, when we realize that we are living out of expectation and we connect with each other and communicate, that uh, we can receive this family of God that we've been grafted into as the gift that it was meant to be rather than obligation. So come on in. When we get bagels, feel free to meet each other and have a real conversation and get coffee afterwards. Or feel free to join a small group and actually get to know the people there. Or come to the dinner and discussion and get to know those people. That whether you've been here like since the beginning, and some of you have, I'm so thankful for you because you've been giving your hearts away for years. Thank you. Or whether this is your first Sunday here, thank you. 
What this passage is inviting us into is to jump into this together, into this economy of giving and receiving and trusting Jesus to do a beautiful work with it. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to worship. We're going to worship the God who has given uh, and has loved us so abundantly through his son, Jesus. Uh, And worship our way into the trust and joy that we can pour that out into the world around us and that we can never outgive our Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father, uh, we're thankful for your word. Oh, Lord, and sometimes it is hard and scary to me. Uh, Hard and scary to us. Oh, and Jesus, we trust that it is so good because you are coming after us. Jesus, we are thankful that you are not content to leave us in a relationship of erring and owing with you and with your Father, and that you came to, to give, to give yourself for us, to pour your love out over us, and that as your people, you are constantly pouring your love into us. Jesus, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. God, would you capture us with that love even this morning as we worship you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, you got to know that if, as we leave this room and walk out in the freedom that we have been given, it can be really scary. I think about those animals they keep in zoos who have been in houses their whole lives and it's not safe to let them back out into the wild. Man, when we have lived our lives uh, entrapped by the, by the rules of relating to God, by owing and by earning, when we've been ensnared by religiosity, to be released into freedom can be a scary thing. Oh, but guys, that is, the, that is the scariness of grace. That is the freedom that we have been found in Jesus that he's inviting us into the adventure of taking hold of. So as you walk out kind of into the world with your pockets full of everything God has poured into you, go out uh, with this promise that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So friends, go out and give out all that Jesus has given to you.